Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to CC with BB, I, Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. I've been reading some novels by a Canadian author named Robertson Davies. He describes the inner thoughts of people about themselves and about others while they are saying things that are quite unrelated to what they're thinking in themselves. It's a very funny book. At least seven times uh, over the last couple of weeks, I noticed that I read something in these novels and it's reflected back in the real world around me. As simple as reading about a character named Monica and then hearing a friend of me, friend of mine telling me for the first time about her friend, Monica, or a character in the novel goes to the Netherlands and the same day I'm interviewing someone from the Netherlands or Zooming with a person from Denmark who is telling me that the Vikings believed either you die or I die. And then I see that phrase reflected in the novel. Is this some kind of code for me to decipher? I'm working on it, I'm working on it. Harvard psychiatrist, John Mack began to hear people talking about aliens and alien, alien abduction. He followed the clues, was investigated by Harvard, cleared of charges of being weird and continues his investigations until he stepped out in front of a car in London and was killed. Our guest today has chronicled the life and work of John Mack, which includes his going through a lot of synchronicities. Ralph Blumenthal was an award-winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009 and has written and co-authored seven books on organized crime and cultural history. He co-authored the recent series of groundbreaking Times articles on the secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs. His most recent book is The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science and the Passion of John Mack. It was published in March 15th uh, of this year by High Road Books of the University of New Mexico Press. Blumenthal earned several prestigious journalism awards, including the Bingham Prize for Distinguished Investigative Reporting on U.S. Air Crashes. He was named Distinguished Lecturer at Baruch College in New York City, where he taught journalism and currently oversees historic collections in the Newman Library archives. He lives in New York City with his wife, Deborah, a, a children's book writer and a novelist. Ralph Blumenthal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to find the time after all <laughs> our bouncing around for this. Right, right. Uh, I first heard of John Mack as a young psychiatrist reading a very thin book uh, he wrote about borderline personality disorders. So I said, oh, it's kind of an interesting book, kind of thin, seems to have captured some things, but I didn't really stick in my mind particularly except his name i don't know why but there it was 
And somehow you, Ralph Blumenthal, intrepid reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, <laughs> <laughs> stepped into the phone booth and found uh, John Mack to be intriguing to you. How'd that happen? I put on my Superman uniform. Yes, you uh, did. That's how. Um, well, that was a synchronicity. Um, I was in Texas for the New York Times. Um, and uh, I used to haunt the bookstores, uh, secondhand bookstores, pick up you know, a lot of uh, anything I could find. Uh, I read very eclectically different subjects. And the, the book I happened to pick up was called Passport to the Cosmos, which was John Mack's second book. Um, as, a, as you said, he was a Harvard psychiatrist who became interested in alien abduction through a series of steps I outline in my book. Anyway, I picked up his book and was amazed. I knew nothing about him even though he was already quite famous in his own right. Uh, he'd been on Oprah. Uh, he'd been uh, written up in the New York Times extensively, uh, made a lot of appearances, but uh, never crossed my uh, path. So um, I thought, well, this is extraordinary. A Harvard psychiatrist interested in aliens and alien abduction. I got to call this guy up you know, for an interview. Uh, yeah, that was my naivete. Um, and a few days later, and here's the synchronicity, uh, I pick up the paper to find him. Yeah, you got to wait now. Yeah. There you go. Been run over in London uh, by a drunk driver and it, it was killed almost instantly. Um, so um, I, I hear about him and then, you know, almost simultaneously uh, he's killed. So I, uh, that got me started. I was interested in his story. I called the family. I got access to his uh, archives, his personal journals, his uh, therapy sessions, because as you know, every psychiatrist needs to go through his own uh, therapy. Um, and I really had a window on his life. So that was the first thing. That's, that's what got me started. And uh, as, as we can discuss later, uh, I really believe, Bernie, that um, uh, authors don't pick books to write, books pick authors. And this was a, and it's happened to me throughout my life. And this is uh, the latest case of that. That's such an interesting comment, uh, Ralph, the, that the books or the content picks you to write their book, write the book. Um, I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I've got another book now, uh, got a contract on Sunsets called um, Knowing Coincidences, uh, How and Why They Happen. And how I got involved with that started when I was like nine uh, and had my first big serendipity coincidence uh, thing happen. Uh, so I have a history of synchronicities in my life, coincidences and stuff. How, how do you think about all the different kinds of books that you've written? Um, I love that you did organized crime and you're still around. Um, <laughs> and you did the UFO thing. And now the New Yorker had a great article about that. Yes, they did. And they you did. were and you were involved with making that happen. Uh, how you've done so many different kinds of books, or at least they seem to be. How, how do you think about the book picks you? Well, uh, uh everything grew out of some experience that, that happened to me. Now, I, I never sat around thinking, what am I going to write my next book about? Uh, so, for example, my first book, which was on the mafia, and all my reporting for the Times, by the way, was on very earth-grounded subjects like the mafia, Nazi war criminals, uh, uh, you know, uh, corruption, uh, police activity, law enforcement, etc., so um, aliens and UFOs were not, you know, on my radar at that point. 
Um, anyway, uh, so I was a reporter, a metro, metro reporter for the New York Times, and I got assigned uh, one day to look in on a trial. It turned out to be the longest federal trial in history of a major drug, international drug uh, combine, uh, which became known as the Pizza Connection because the Italian mafia was selling drugs out of pizza parlors, which is a great way to disguise money laundering and, and drugs because it was carrying pizza boxes back and forth and no one knows what's in them. You assume it's going to be a pizza. Anyway, I got to covering this trial and I quickly realized that the trial was a major landmark in, in law enforcement. It was one of the biggest cases the FBI ever had. And uh, naturally a book suggested itself uh, out of that because there was no way to tell that story in a series of newspaper articles. So that was book number one. Now, uh, uh, what was happening, what was interesting is as I was researching that book, I got interested in undercover work because a lot of the FBI agents who penetrated the mafia for that case were undercover agents. So I found an undercover agent in the New York Police Department who would talk to me about his work. And generally they don't like to talk about their work uh, because it's, it's obviously undercover and secret. But uh, he was doing other work then in the, you know, in the detective bureau. So he talked to me. And while I was asking him about his undercover work, he sort of dropped the fact that while he was uh, undercover inside this mafia family, um, investigating their drug dealing, uh, his own 16-year-old daughter was dealing drugs and became a drug addict. And he came across her on the street one day dealing drugs and had to decide whether to arrest his own daughter. So he's telling wow. me this story. Wow. He's telling me this wow. story wow. in connection with my research into undercover work. And I said, hold on, forget about everything else. Forget about all the other stuff I was asking you. Let's talk about you and your daughter. So that became my second book, Once Through the Heart, all about a cop who rescued his daughter from drugs. And he was able to, he was able to rescue her uh, through a lot of trauma. Um, so, um, uh, that, so that was, you know, another what, example. What you're describing, um, I, I call something like the dog that trots about finds a bone. Yeah, because you were trotting about and you found bones and you were you were wise, clever or whatever enough to say, hey, that'll be tasty thing to go for. It was it was an opportunity that you seized each time. And that's uh, that's 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 where I don't I think where you you have some agency in this that you made a decision. I've got plenty of people who have opportunities presented to them and don't take them, you have. Right, right. well, uh, and that, that, you know, that continued. Uh, so I was sitting in the New York Times uh, news, newsroom one day and um, I got an assignment to write about um, uh, FBI surveillance of uh, cultural figures like uh, John Lennon and Leonard Bernstein. Um, so um, I did that story and then I get a call from a guy I'd never heard of who was a restaurant owner who said uh, he read my article about the FBI files and did I know that Josephine Baker, the famous uh, dancer in the 20s, who was his stepmother, I find out, um, had a, a big FBI file. And did I know that she had a famous incident at the Stork Club, uh, New York's uh, famous nightclub, 
uh, where she stormed out and accused them of racism. And did I know that the store club had been bugged by its owner and the FBI was listening in on all the conversations and on and on. And I knew nothing of this. So um, I started looking into it and I connected to the owner's daughter uh, who wanted to write a book about the store club. And that became my next book. So again, uh, a guy reaches out to me, a restaurant owner, um, who tells me the story about his stepmother, Josephine Baker, who's had a famous incident at the store club. And um, there you are. There, uh, you there are. I am. There I uh, this, this is so consistent with what I'm seeing in my own history as I look at my history of coincidences. I'm writing, I'm writing them up now. And they've often been looking finding an opportunity. And the simplest version of that was playing football and running with the ball and seeing an opening and going for it. That's, right. the, that's the basic line. And that's what you, Superman, have, were doing is seeing an opening and going for it. I think that's wonderful. But I'm saying yeah. that the book didn't just, it happened to you and you took the opportunity. Well, you know, you, you, as we say in the journalism field, you make your own luck. Yeah. So you've got to be in position to take advantage of opportunities that, you know, coincidence or serendipity or, you know, uh, these strange connections in the universe offer to you. Yeah. Um, now, um, I'll tell yes. you one more story that grew, uh, that that's it's similar. Uh, while I was researching the book on the store club, um, I heard about uh, the the notes of the owner, Sherman Billingsley, talked about it. talked about a fight at the store club between uh, Ernest Hemingway and the warden of Sing Sing. And I never heard of that. I'd never heard of the warden of Sing Sing who had a great name, uh, Lewis Laws, <laughs> Laws for the warden of Sing Sing. Now, you know, talk about a synchronicity. Oh, th th this, this is nominative <laughs> determinism. Right. I, have a, I have a list of people of names that correlate with oh, sure. what they do. It's amazing. Yeah, well, if you if you named that at birth, maybe that's what you go into. That's right. Um, so anyway, so I hear about this fight between Hemingway and Warden Laws. I'd never heard of Warden Laws, but I looked him up and it turned out, yeah, he was the warden of Sing Sing in the 20s. He was a very famous warden uh, and a great humanitarian. And he fought against the death penalty, even though he had to execute all those 300 people in the electric chair. So that became my next book on, on Warden Laws. So it's a series of, of it, you know, one thing is handed off to the next. And as you say, it's not pure synchronicity, but it is taking advantage of an opportunity that the universe sort of shoves in your path. Yeah, yeah. that's. That's, those are great stories and they illustrate the dog that trots about, finds a bone and you were trotting around. Now let's, let's go to John Mack because you got out of crime uh, right. and into a different kind of crime, a kind of a crime <laughs> against uh, the way people think about things. That's what the right. UFO business is. Yeah. So you're, you're another criminal investigator in, in quotation marks and that you've gotten into uh, John Mack's interviews, among other things, of people who have been abducted by aliens. And you've come to be pretty clear that there are aliens among us in some form or another. Well, I would say that um, I understand the people who tell these stories and told them to John Mack. Uh, and in short, there's no other easy explanation for the things that they say they experienced. Um, 
and this is what John Mack found, he ruled out all the other things. He was a psychiatrist, as you said. He had written, in addition to that book on, uh, you know, uh, 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 anomalous states um, uh, in psychiatry, he had written a book on nightmares, so he knew what nightmares were. So later on, when people said, oh, you don't understand these people who think they've been abducted, they're just having nightmares. He said, I know nightmares. I've written a book about nightmares. That These are not nightmares. Because for most of, mostly because they don't always happen at night. They happen while people are walking around, they're driving their cars. Anyway, um, so, um, you know, as a result of that, I understood why he came to the conclusion that something was happening that could not and still cannot be explained in our current understanding of reality, something interdimensional, some penetration of our reality by uh, other intelligences, etc. But the, the usual explanation that these people are crazy, that they're imagining it, that they're deluded, that they're looking for publicity, none of those really wash as I lay out in the book. Good. And in, in what, I, what my studying of synchronicity and coincidences is in the same direction. People can be crazy or they're thinking their thinking's off for some reason. So it's a modified form of the alien thing. It breaks away from conventional thinking, not as big, but still away. And what I want to know is since you've gotten into having to at least partially believe there's something else going on around here, how has that affected your experiences of synchronicity and coincidences, which I'm expecting have gone up since then? Well, they started as soon as I started working on the book. Uh, for example, uh, the first thing I found out when I started looking into John Mack was that his father was a, a famous professor at City College where I was an undergraduate and when I was an undergraduate. So I knew his name. I never connected the two. Um, uh, but I was an English major at City College, and uh, Ed Mack was a famous English professor at City College. So when I started looking into the, the family history, I said, my God, we, we must have crossed paths. I didn't have him for a course, but I knew who he was. And I knew a lot of the incidents that took place uh, while he was there. And, and, and we did overlap. He was there while I was there. Um, so that was number one. Secondly, uh, John Mack's uh, mother died when he was very young, and that's a factor in his story. He, he was eight and a half months old when she died of appendicitis, so he was always searching for something missing in his life, and his father then remarried a woman who was also a professor, and um, she was an economist in the New Deal, quite prominent in her own way, and uh, as you mentioned, I'm a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College, so I'm working in the archives, and one day this file pops out at me by the stepmother. Uh, she had uh, done work uh, that was recognized at Baruch College and there was a whole file on her and the books that she had written. And I by that time I was deep into the book. I said, my God, the stepmother's reaching out to me in some bizarre way to let me know that you know she knows me and uh, whatever. So I, 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 I found that. Well, and then just, just, just so we can pause and because I, I really like hearing his stories and I like being able to label them a little bit because uh, that's part of what I'm doing. And this what happened to you with her with, was called Library Angels sometimes <laughs> where, where books pop out, files pop out and they just happen right in front of you and they do literally sometimes fall on the floor in front of people right uh, but there's lots of stories like that and that's kind of uh, in the magical realm 
Uh, how does that happen, especially right when you can use it? And that's what these stories tend to be, just like this one. Well, and it, you know, it kept happening. I was looking for a cousin of, of John Max because I needed to fill in some family biography. So he had a cousin who actually was quite prominent. He was the last uh, owner of, of uh, Rheingold beer, which was a big deal when I was growing up. And you know, you voted in the Miss Rheingold contest. Oh yeah, you I know, remember that. <laughs> uh, all those pretty girls. So uh, I'm looking for this guy who uh, had been um, Max's cousin and looked everywhere for him, couldn't find him. And when I finally tracked him down, he was living across the street from me. Uh, in Manhattan. So I just crossed the street and went up to his house and, you know, we had a nice talk. Um, so, uh, yeah, stuff like that kept happening. And uh, I kept finding people, uh, maybe not quite as dramatic as that. Those, those, those incidents really jumped out at me. Um, but there was something that happened in John Mack's life, uh, by the way, that you, you touched on when he was run over. You know, I was I was going through that story for my book. He was run over in London. He'd been there for a conference on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. He'd written a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Lawrence. So he went back for a conference in 2004 and got out of the underground station, looked the wrong way and got run down. Well, a guy, a protege of his who I interviewed for the book told me that at, just as John Mack was in London for that for that conference, uh, he, the guy who was telling me the story, another psychiatrist was in Russia um, uh, with his wife for, for a conference of their own. And he's in a, in a taxi cab in St. Petersburg and he looks out of the taxi and he sees a guy getting run over and the taxi just keeps going. And he's very troubled by this. And, you know, he said, well, it, it, it happens. And he gets back uh, to Boston uh, and he finds out that about the same time, John Mack got run over in London. Um, and, what was what was his relationship with John Mack? What was his relationship with John Mack? He was a, a, a student uh, under John Mack. Uh, he happened to be a guy who was in the audience at Harvard when John Mack talked for the first time uh, publicly to a general Harvard audience, uh, Grand Rounds, about alien abduction shortly after he learned about it. He was very quick to talk about it before he'd really studied it, but he was very enthusiastic. Anyway, this guy was in the audience. The reason why I ask is because this falls into a category I call simulpathity, uh, the experience of the pain of a loved one at a distance. And this, and there has to be like a connection usually between the two people uh, that for that to be happening. And this is a, a variation on the theme that is intriguing. That here's well, they a guy. Were, yeah, they, here's they were very well connected uh, because he was a, a protege of, of, of John Max. As I said, he'd been in the audience. He didn't know John Mack at all. He came to, uh, I mean, there was a synchronicity in his story too. He came to, um, uh, he was a medical student. Uh, he was applying to Harvard uh, Medical School and um, he had heard about John Mack. That was one of the reasons that attracted him to Harvard, okay? So he comes up for an interview First, he's told there's no interview slots, but somebody pulls strings for him. He comes up to, to Harvard uh, for the interview. And on the way to his interview, he sees a leaflet on the, on the wall of Harvard Medical School saying, John Mack is speaking today about alien abduction. 
Wow. The same day. So he said, this is amazing. He says, I come here because of John. I was told that John Mack is a great professor to study under. And here he is giving a lecture. So he goes to the lecture. He hears John Mack talking about aliens and and realizes that he himself had a, had seen a UFO when he was a kid. Uh, and so he knew what John Mack was talking about wasn't nonsense. Um, anyway, this is the guy who then stayed in touch with John Mack. They just became a, quite close. Just a, just a second. Again, I love your stories because they remind me of others. Uh, I had first taken uh, LSD in 1965 in, in Los Angeles and went to a, uh, a lecture at Yale. I was a Yale medical student. And uh, it was about the Good Friday experiment. Uh, uh, where Walter Pankey and his crew had given psilocybin to to under to um, to divinity students in the basement of a church uh, in in Cambridge, and they'd had mystical experiences. He described it: nine out of ten had a mystical experience. And then the guy says, who's giving the talk, that the supervisor for Pankey's experiment uh, was Jerry Clareman, and Jerry Clareman was now at Yale. He'd moved from from uh, Yale, from Harvard to Yale. So I go knock on Jerry's door and I say, hey, Jerry, you know, I was an I took some LSD and and uh, then you then you had this thing. So he so he asked me about it and uh, he connected me up with Walter Pankey. And I went to Harvard for went to Mass Mental where Walter Pankey was a psychiatric resident and uh, looked at their data from their second um, study, which Harvard had stopped because um, because Albert and Leary had been found out for giving undergraduates psychedelics. Right. And so they stopped, but they had the data. And I had this idea about how expectation influences experience. And that's another coincidence story of mine. Uh, so I tried to see what the relationship between expectations of, of these uh, research subjects was and the reported experience at, at, at Mass Mental. And that became the basis of my uh, thesis for me to graduate from Yale, which I needed, huh. which I needed to have. So it's, it, I, that's a similar kind of story. Yeah. As you say, they, they, it requires a closeness of the participants. And uh, this fellow I'm telling you about, who was a student of John Max, his name is Wesley Boyd. I'm still in touch with him. Hmm. Um, um, so he he would be in a position to feel something that Mac was feeling at you know uh, half a world away, and yeah. uh, that happened to him in uh, in London, and and Boyd was in in St. Petersburg. Yeah. But, um, that's a variation uh, on the theme that I hadn't had before. So that's a so anyway, the John Mack death, as you know better than I, was attributed to like uh, 15 different reasons that it was uh, it was a suicide, that he had enough of being in life, uh, that uh, somebody from the establishment pushed him out in front of the car and uh, got him run over. But somehow, you know, he looked the wrong way, but you weren't there. Right. I, I looked at the police reports and um, uh, I mean, one of the stories I heard initially was that, you know, another man named John Mack was run over just at the same time somewhere else. So that shows that he had been targeted. They just got the wrong John Mack that other time. Oh, wow. Well, 
I found nothing. I mean, it's possible. Oh, you happen. can't prove you can't yeah. prove a negative. You know, yeah. possibly somebody else in the world named John. But yeah. I, I found no reason to think it was anything but a, um, a legitimate drunk driving accident. I, I w- went through the police reports. I know the guy who ran him over. Uh, the Mac family later pleaded that he not be punished for it. He was. He lost his license. Was sent to prison for uh, jail for you know a uh, w- w- few months. Um, but that that's that was the end, the beginning and end of the story. But here's something else interesting just popped into my mind. Um, that when he he was expected, the night he was run over, he was staying with a, a friend, a woman who was. Uh, 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 a great believer in seances, as it turns out. But anyway, a, a quite a, a follower of anomalous uh, activity. Anyway, um, at the moment he was run over, her niece, and I, I think I got this right, a relative of hers, I think it was her niece, and this is in the book, felt a sharp pang, a panic attack at that very moment. And didn't realize it, of course, till she heard later that John Mack had been run over on his way to, you know, the the aunt's house. So um, that would fit into what you just said about people who who suffer pain uh, through a connection with somebody who who's actually hurting. Yes, 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 yes. And I've got data from other people and many stories that uh, confirm the same thing. It's just that people don't talk about it because it's not in a category that they can put in their minds and say, it happened to me. And part of my job is to get out stories like the ones you're just telling me. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in, you know, another thing that happened to me, and this is not connected to John Mack, but it, uh, uh, in a way it is actually, uh, but Robert Bigelow, the um, billionaire space uh, entrepreneur who's, who ran Skinwalker Ranch and is very involved in anomalous things he started a contest for the best evidence of the afterlife yeah yeah so i wrote a story about it in the new york times so i I interviewed him uh by you know zoom and i'm putting the story together and struggling with it because it's a very complicated story and i couldn't figure out where to start the story or you know the normal journalistic uh, you know sturm und drang when you're putting something together so i'm lying in bed about 5 30 in the morning trying to think about how to tell the story and suddenly there's a tremendous explosion uh, in the bedroom right outside the wall. And um, I jump uh, up in bed and my wife is awakened. My dog is awakened. The dog's in the bed too. And the window to the terrace, the door had just bl- blown apart, uh, shattered. Um, and, it, and it happened as I could reconstruct it later, as I was thinking about, you know, I, As I was grappling with these issues of the afterlife and, you know, what might be out there, what other dimensions and this and that, and suddenly there's this tremendous explosion and the window blows out. Now, um, later on, you know, people said, well, it's probably it's a double thermopane and there was a moisture buildup or maybe a bird hit it. Or, you know, we're 12, 12 floors up from the street, so I don't think it was a pebble from from the street. but. Uh, all I know is that the, the door blew blew apart. I mean, it was the glass didn't shatter all over. It was held in place, but it was spider web with cracks. The entire door. Something hit it with tremendous force, uh, or there was some internal uh, temperature inversion or whatever. You know, I don't know, but it happened as I was thinking about um, the afterlife and what might be out there. 
What do you think? There's, there usually has to be some mechanical explanation, usually. However, it's the timing is too coincidental to be coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're thinking about it around that time could be the, the straw that breaks the window, the straw that makes it happen at a vulnerable time and the thoughts hit it. Now, I, because I'm a psychiatrist and a therapist, I look for personal responsibility in creating serendipities and synchronicities, but that's not enough some of the time. Some of them are too mysterious and too weird that you have to invoke other forces. And I try to separate off the physical, the psychological and from the mysterious. And in this one, there's also a mystery involved. Right. Uh, I know it, it, it's, it's very difficult. And it, it's of course, as I found with, with John Mack's stories, it's, it's impossible to prove uh, things in this realm of, uh, you know, the anomalous and, uh, you know, Charles Fort, uh, the wonderful anomalous, uh, like to say, uh, it's like looking for a needle that was never lost in a haystack that never was <laughs> to talk about how, how difficult. Um, but, you know, you just reminded me of something else. And these things are just popping into my mind now that I'm thinking of, uh, you know, coincidences or so. But um, my mother died of a silent heart attack. Um, she uh, she'd suffered it. Uh, at age 82, I've, I visited her because um, she wasn't feeling well. I didn't know she'd suffered this heart attack, took her to the hospital and she died the next day. Um, her, her cleaning woman said to me afterwards, she said, you know, this is interesting. Your mother said to me um, a day or two ago, uh, this weekend I have to go to New Jersey. And my mother would never go to New Jersey. She was living in uptown Manhattan. She didn't travel anywhere. If she would, she would have had to go by bus. She didn't drive. So, um, of course, that's where we buried her in New Jersey. Um, so, you know, did she have a premonition that she would have to, she was going to end up in the graveyard a few days later? Um, is that a story? Someone... How do you understand that, Ralph? Is that a common story for someone to, to get that kind of a premonition? I have to be in New Jersey uh, this weekend and yeah. that's where she was buried. Yeah, Pe people often know when they're gonna die or that they're gonna die. Um, if this is a little more general than that, they, to, to know that I wanna be near the graveyard is, uh, is a little, I, I, I could see she wanted to go to New Jersey for some other reason, but she doesn't usually go to New Jersey. So because it was an aberration from her, she may have had the feeling she's going to go to her next home. Yes. People, there, we know a lot more than we allow ourselves to know. And part of synchronicity is to be able to say we know things, but don't know how we know them. Mm. Intu intuition has been buried in modern rationality uh, with Descartes' splitting of mind and brain, among other things. And here is a feeling somebody gets and acts on it. And when, you, when you, you're doing your John Mack work and whatever else you do with it, you're following uh, the hunch 
of the great metropolitan newspaper reporter. You're, you've got a sense and you follow it. So you've been able to be successful like this because you've trusted your intuition in some way and say, this is a good place to go, a good thing to be able to do. And so while we're talking about that, why don't you tell us where the, our audience can get a hold of your book? Sure. Um, it's uh, it's well stocked. I mean, Amazon sold out the first printing a little while ago, but now it has plenty of copies. Got the second printing in. Uh, then say, say say the title of it. And sure. Uh, my book, The Believer: uh, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, um, is uh, widely available now. Uh, the second printing has recently came in. Amazon is well stocked. Independent bookstores, who I love especially because they have the backbone of our you know, book buying culture um, and they're struggling and yes. they've been very good to me because they've invited me for all kinds of events, including one I did with Dan Aykroyd in LA that was plagued by aliens. I can tell you that story. Um, um, anyway, um, so independent bookstores, there's a Kindle version that, you know, through Amazon, so you can get it instantly if you don't want to wait. And uh, there will be an audio version soon. My publisher has signed up an audio book for people who uh, have you know, trouble reading. So um, it's, it's widely available, very easy to get, and, um, and it's and selling very well. That's very good. And uh, your name is Ralph Blumenthal, in case they've missed it. Uh, and so they can get your book and they can hear some stories uh, made nothing like what we're talking about here. It's something like what we're talking about here. Uh, as, as we're getting toward the end of our, our uh, time together, Ralph, uh, what would you like our audience to know about your book, about John Mack? Well, John Mack was very courageous, first of all. Uh, he, um, it, it, it was a counterintuitive that a Harvard, an esteemed Harvard psychiatrist who had written a, a a biography that won the Pulitzer Prize of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and who was distinguished for his uh, leadership in psychiatry, would risk his career, which he did, uh, because he was gripped by the stories that people told him, ordinary people um, from di all different walks of life, including children two years old, too young to you know, have read books about aliens. All these people were telling a basically consistent story that they saw a UFO, they became aware of an alien presence, they somehow were beamed through walls and you know, solid and windows to some kind of a ship for reproductive procedures that often involved you know, breeding a hybrid race. Uh, this is the stories they told him and he followed the, the anecdotal evidence. There was no physical evidence, obviously, but he was courageous enough to follow the evidence. It got him into trouble at Harvard. They investigated him, concluded he was doing nothing wrong and left, left him off to continue. So I, I find him an inspirational figure. Um, it's, it's a fascinating subject. Um, I let the facts speak for themselves. I don't come down on one side or the other. Uh, there's obviously no physical proof that these things happen. But as John Mack said, all the other explanations were um, were ruled crazy. They were not mentally ill. Uh, they were not faking. When they, you know, as a psychiatrist, what affect is, 
when they told these stories about what, it ha what they thought had happened to them or what they felt had happened to them, they told it with suitable affect. They cried, they wept, they cursed. Uh, women felt the pregnancy being taken from them to you know, produce these hybrid children. Um, on the other hand, no, no gynecologist ever certified that this woman had a pregnancy and it suddenly was removed by aliens. Uh, um, so uh, it's a mystery, it, but it's a mystery that he, in the best spirit of, of humanity, uh, chose to investigate. So I said, you know, the real heroes here are not the aliens, they're the humans who, who plunge into this mystery and try to unravel it uh, unsuccessfully so far, but it's a fascinating journey. Now that you uh, were being a... Uh... A neutral reporter trying to be anyway. Uh, what do you think of the aliens among us? Well, um, look, I think that there, there are anomalous things. I think that there's more to our, to reality than the four corners of our space time, you know, three, three dimensional and time continuum. Um, there is, physics is always finding out new things, but beyond that, um, I'm aware through experiences like we discussed, you know, the synchronicities, that there is another dimension that intrudes on our dimension that we cannot explain. Um, and um, at Harvard, they took the position that because John Mack couldn't explain them or couldn't show them or display them or prove them, they couldn't, they couldn't be existing. And he was wrong to pursue it. And um, I think they were wrong. I think that there are things that we don't understand yet, may never understand, but that are out there that are very strange um, and that uh, uh, you know, lead me to believe that there's more out there than the, you know, the contours of our, our reality. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing to me how rigidly uh, three-dimensional science holds to their beliefs. It's a religion uh, because when they, when Harvard says uh, we got to have an explanation, uh, otherwise it doesn't exist. We didn't have explanations for electricity and magnetism until 1700s, 1800s, but everybody knew they were, but people knew they were happening. So Absolutely. you've got to look at the thing first and to see that the thing exists, like electricity and magnetism, then you get some minds together with some serendipity synchronicity to come together to try to figure out how it's working. Right. And I'm, I'm doing just that with coincidences, which is a dirtier subject in, the, in that some of them are explainable in conventional terms, but some of them are not. And some of them are explainable of our having something to do with them with powers we don't know we have. So there's, there's power in us that's mystery that we coincidences suggest we have. And there's mystery out there that we've got to investigate. But first we establish as John Mack was trying to do, there's something weird going on, ladies and gentlemen. And it's consistent, the same stories. I mean, drug, drug innovation is often built on getting a series of anecdotes in which this drug did this reaction in somebody in a positive way. Then they do double-blind placebo-controlled trials right. to see whether it's true or not. But you have to establish the reality of the observation, which John Mack did. Well, also, uh, Bernard, you know, uh, a lot of scientific uh, breakthroughs uh, uh, could seem to come from downloads. 
to the scientists. It's not the end product of a meticulous step-by-step, you know, painstaking, um, you know, uh, uh, study or, or pathway. It's that some uh, insight suddenly appears. Um, and, and I mean, um, uh, Carrie Mullis, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist who died recently, who had an, uh, an alien type experience, uh, said that his Nobel Prize winning breakthrough on replicating DNA just came to him. He was in the car, I think, and uh, it just popped into his mind. Now, was that a download from the cosmos? Uh, it, it appears to be. Um, or maybe his mind was working on the problem so hard that the solution, you know, suggested itself to him. You could, you know, think of it either way. But very often, scientific breakthroughs come through a sudden insight whose source is unknown. And this is related to simultaneous discoveries in science, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, and they continue, where independent researchers come up with the same idea. And that's allowed me to hypothesize the psychosphere, of the mental atmosphere of which we give and take ideas and energy. And if you're really an adventurer, as this guy was, trying to find out. So you hit the outer reaches of this psychosphere where there are not too many thoughts that people are thinking to get to, and you get it at the time that your mind is more open to it. So I'm still an intermediate that I don't have to go to the universe. Ralph, the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. Yeah. Uh, what's go going on around here? Into what? Into what? <laughs> yeah, into what? And what's this? What this? What's this? Only knowing five percent of material of the universe, ninety-five percent dark matter. There's so much mystery out there, and the right. cosmologists are keeping looking. But one of the funny things that I think we have to end with is that cosmologists, when they're looking around and there's telescopes and they're picking up in the machineries, they say, "Hmm, there's something weird happening." And that's something weird becomes something for them to investigate. It's a hint of something else out there. Here on Earth, among us Earthlings, right. when a weird thing happens, we say, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. And John Mack was open to that. And he, uh, you know, to his credit, he just, he, he did keep an open mind and uh, he, uh, he eliminated all the other things and was left with the mystery. But at least, you know, I wish that the so-called skeptics and the debunkers would do as much research as John Mack did, or that I did for my book for that matter, because um, there's a lot of information out there uh, that you really have to, to go through and know before you just say, oh, these people are crazy or it's a night or sleep paralysis. That's a common one. And sleep, well, it doesn't happen during sleep all the time. It could happen in one case as a woman on a snowmobile. Um, so anyway, uh, I, we have to be a little more humble. That's all. It's, it's, it's more than more humble, I'm afraid, is that as we see in the modern political discourse, people will hold on to a belief despite the evidence. There is this need to hold on and it's probably group belonging. They don't want to feel different from everybody else. It's one of the variables. There is this rigidity that people need to hold on to ideas, as even though the evidence is not there. You're a curious guy. You're a curious guy. You like to, hey, what's going on here? That's what you do. And, right. and not everybody is like you, Ralph, wanting to know what's well, going on here. And that's why we rely on guys like you. And so... Thank you very, very much for, for being with me on a, 
on this podcast. And it's been a, been a delight talking with you, Ralph. Well, pleasure on my part, too. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. <laughs> Great. This psychosphere is our mental atmosphere like a hologram of cosmic consciousness.